Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I'd travel a long way just to be around Danny Aiken, just, just because he exudes joy in the Lord and a passion for the Great Commission. And uh, that's, that's something that is important in every generation, uh, that we have a passion for the gospel and getting it to the nations. And, and Danny has devoted his life to raising up men and women who are willing to sacrifice to do that here and around the world. So anytime he calls, I come. And it's always a joy to be at Southeastern. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 150. This is, of course, the final psalm in the Psalter, and it's a psalm of praise, but it actually is very much connected to the, to the, to the issue of missions. You're going to, you're going to see that uh, after we work through the psalm together. There is a direct and inseparable correlation between the praise of God and the missionary endeavor of the church. And if you don't understand that, your passion for missions will be weakened. And this psalm actually helps us greatly in that area. You know that um, many, many years ago, a very famous expositor of the Bible said that the psalms are the anatomy of all parts of the Christian soul. And uh, they, they are a book that we as Christians today don't know as well as we ought to. Uh, and one thing that you could do with profit is, is make a long-term commitment to have a commanding understanding of the Psalms and to commit much of them to memory and to use them for your prayers. I often uh, have young people say to me, what can I do to grow in my practice of prayer? And one very simple answer to that in one sentence is, pray the Psalms. Learn to pray the Psalms yourself as your prayer to God. Don't just read them and learn from them and think about another believer or group of believers praying them to God, but pray them to God yourself. Make them your own. And as you make the themes of those prayers your own, you'll find that that gives your language, it gives your tongue the ability to, to fly itself and to lift up those kinds of rich, deep, substantive prayers and intercession and praises to God. But I want us to look together today at this last psalm, and I want us to think about what it teaches us about our ultimate purpose in life, our final end, uh, our chief end and goal in life. Before we read God's Word, let's pray and ask for His help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and they fall, but your word stands 
forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. I want you to see four things with me briefly this morning in this psalm. Where we are to praise God, why we are to praise God, how we are to praise God, and who it is that is to praise God. Where, why, how, who. Now you know that the first four books of the psalms each end with a doxology. Well, the fifth book of the Psalms ends with a series of doxologies culminating with a doxology. Starting in Psalm 145, the Psalms are wholly focused on praise. When when you look at Psalm 1, Psalm 1 tells you how to live life with God. And along the way in the Psalms, you will get laments, intercessions, complaints. You will uh, find many, many sad psalms along the way sprinkled in with psalms of praise and joy and gladness. The psalms end with a series of psalms of pure praise to God. I believe that that indicates to you, the very flow of the psalms indicates to you where we're supposed to be getting in Christian discipleship. Now notice the utter realism of the Psalms. Though we are made for praise, though our end is praise, that does not mean that there are not sadnesses in life. Those sadnesses do not in any way undermine the worthiness of God for praise. Or our chief end in being made for his praise. So the very shape of the Psalms, they're utterly realistic about the believer's life. There are many dangers, toils, and snares on the way to our eternal home. But our destiny is praise. We were made for praise, and the the whole direction of the Psalms points us there. And Psalm 150 is the climax at the end of this grand spiritual symphony that uh, has been 
ringing throughout the Psalms, but especially from Psalm 145 to the end. We were made for praise. And that realization is controlling in how we approach the Christian life, the Christian ministry, and the Christian mission. So let me walk through these four parts of the Psalms with you this morning and just connect the dots. The first thing I want you to see is where the Psalm tells us we are to praise God. Look at verse 1. Praise God in his sanctuary. If you're looking at an older translation, it may say praise him in his holiness. And the Hebrew professors here at Southeastern will tell you why, that you have to decide how you're going to translate that Hebrew word. And it could be sanctuary in reference to the tabernacle or to the temple, or it could be something more abstract like about the holiness of God. But I'm going to go with the translation here in the ESV, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. So notice what the psalm begins by saying, where does the psalmist want God to be praised? Absolutely everywhere. Not only in the sanctuary, not only when the people of God are gathered at the tabernacle or at the temple to sing him praises, to engage in gathered worship, but in the heavens as well. Uh, this is a little bit like the opening of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a Hebrew way of saying he created everything because everything can be summarized in the heavens and the earth. Here, the psalmist says, where do I want God to be praised? I want him to be praised, not just in the sanctuary, but in the heavens. He wants God to be praised everywhere. This is also a little bit like the doxology. Some of you are in churches that still use the doxology fairly regularly. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It comes from a hymn that Thomas Ken wrote. He lived in um, Stuart, England and was a minister in the Church of England and he ended three songs with what we call the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So what does that Doxology asks for, for God to be praised here and there. In other words, for the praise of God to be everywhere. And you see the logic of it. If God made everyone, if God made everything, where do you want his praise to be? Everywhere. Because he made it all. He is deserving of the credit of the worship, of the valuing from everywhere because he is the creator of it all. So the, the psalmist begins with a, an expression of a desire that God's praise would be coextensive with everything that he has made. Now, by the way, that reminds us that when we're gathered here to praise God, this is not the only worship service going on. There is a more perfect worship service going on right now in glory 
and we are just practicing for it. By the way, you need to remember that one, one, we're losing a sense of the Lord's Day in our culture, even in our churches. And people kind of look at the, the, the Lord's Day as a burden, and uh, it's, it's a time where, oh, I have to go to church, and I have to set up the chairs, and I have to do... You know. The Lord's Day is practice for what we're going to be doing eternally. It, it ought to be something you're looking forward to. And by the way, as those who are going to lead the churches in discipleship, worship, praise, and mission, you ought to be the chief aspirants to worship. You ought to worship, want to worship more than anybody else. And your, your love for worship ought to be allergic. Your people ought to catch it uh, because you're so looking forward to gathering with the saints of God for the praise of God. And we're, and sorry, my, my watch is talking to me. <laughs> I thought I turned it off before we started. Um, you, your worship of God, your attitude towards worship is something that your congregation needs to catch. And here the psalmist, he, he, it's his aspiration that God would be worshipped coextensively with the totality of his creation in the sanctuary and in the mighty heavens. That's where we're to worship God. Now, why? Look at verse 2. The psalmist tells you why we ought to worship God in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now, now notice that the praise is not circumstantial here. It's not, praise the Lord for he has delivered me from my enemies. Now look, that is a perfectly legitimate cause for praise. It is a good thing to be delivered from our enemies. And the psalmist praises God for that all the time. Praise the Lord for he has spared me from death. That is a perfectly legitimate cause for praise to God. And the psalmist praises God for that all the time. Praise the Lord that he has given me a godly believing spouse. Praise the Lord that he is giving me godly believing children. Praise the Lord that we're seeing conversions in the ministry of our church and a million other circumstances in life that are perfectly appropriate to praise God for. I'm not saying we don't praise God for the kind providences and to the goodnesses that he shows us in his mercy all the time in our lives. In fact, we would be ingrates if we didn't do that. Every good gift from the Lord deserves praise from God. But notice, the psalmist here is not talking about that. He's talking about God. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. In other words, he's thinking especially of God's redemptive work and of God's own person and character. Praise God for his great work of redemption in the Old Testament. That's especially looking back to the Exodus, bringing the children of Israel out of the house of bondage, out of the land of slavery, into the freedom of the sons of God, into a life of worship in the promised land. That great work of redemption, that is a cause of praise. And then praise him for the excellent greatness. In other words, the point is, Lord, you, you deserve inherently to be praised because of who you are. Just because of who you are, you ought to be praised. If every circumstance in my life was awful, you deserve to be praised. 
My, my father loved good food. Daddy died in 1992. I felt like an orphan in this world ever since he went home to be with the Lord. But he loved good food. And there, there would be times when we, I, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, which back in those days was a good four hours from Charleston, South Carolina, where he had once worked for Dun & Bradstreet. And every once in a while on a Saturday morning, he'd say, hey, son, you want some seafood? And I'd say, sure. And we'd get in the car and we'd drive to Charleston, South Carolina for dinner. And then we'd drive back to Greenville that night. He loved a good meal. There was a place in Blacksburg, South Carolina, right off of Highway 5 called Kelly's Steakhouse. And he loved to go to Kelly's Steakhouse. And we knew what he was going to say after that meal. He was going to say, son, I believe that was the best steak I have ever had. And it got, it got to be a joke that no, no matter where we were, I believe that was the best steak I have ever had. He had a penchant for hyperbole about food. He enjoyed his food, and he was ready to give hyperbolic praise to those particular meals that we enjoyed together. But here's the thing about God. You cannot speak in hyperbole about God. You cannot overpraise him. His greatness is greater than your capacity to praise his greatness. And so the psalmist is saying here, I want you not only to praise God for his great redemptive works on our behalf, and of course for those of us who are believers under the glories of the new covenant, we look not back to the shadow of the exodus, but the real exodus accomplished by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he laid down his life on the cross in our place. He bore our sins in our stead so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That ought to be praised, but God's own person ought to be praised along with it. And so the psalmist is saying, here's why you need to praise God because of what he has done for you in redemption. A story which will never ever be equaled in the history of this world as long as it lasts. The story that you get to tell the nations is better than any other story that ever has been or ever will be. And praise him for who he is. There's nothing like him. You are to praise God because he is inherently worthy of praise. I, I think I've told you this story before. A number of years ago, I was with John MacArthur, a young woman who had been converted by listening to tapes. And if you don't know what tapes are, see me afterwards. They're an older technology that was used for recording voice. Um, he, she was converted listening to tapes of somebody else preach John MacArthur sermons in her language in a closed Sunni Muslim country where if you become a a Christian, they kill you. And uh, she had gone to Masters University in California. And over a Christmas break, she had gone home. She got to the house. Her parents were not there, but her uncle was, who was a very, very devout and very, very angry Sunni Muslim because of her conversion. And he told her, you have dishonored our family. You have brought shame on us. You have insulted Allah, and I am going to administer justice. And he took a chair, he broke it, and he began to beat her to death. 
and her father came home right in the middle of this, rescued her from his brother, took her to the hospital, then took her to the airport, put her on a plane, and said, my daughter, you are not going to be able to come back home and send her back to California. So she shows up in California over Christmas break. The resident directors are, what, what do we do about this? They hear the story, they say, we've got to take her to Dr. MacArthur. So they take her to Dr. MacArthur, she tells him the whole story, and finally he says, may I ask you a question? While your uncle was trying to kill you, what were you thinking? Now, this is an 18-year-old young woman, and she says, I was thinking, this man has a religion he would kill for but I have a savior I would die for. In other words, she had decided that he was worthy of praise, even unto death, no matter what the circumstances were in her life. In other words, her praise of her savior was not circumstantially rooted. It was rooted in who he was and what, or who he is and what he had done her. And that's what the psalmist is saying. We're to praise God for himself, for his mighty acts, and for his majesty. Third, very quickly, how are we to praise God? And you'll see it in verses 3, 4, and 5. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Now, what's so interesting about this section is most of these things are not associated with temple worship. Most of these things are associated either with um, you know, wedding celebrations in a, in a village amongst uh, believers in Israel or great national celebrations like in Exodus chapter 12 to 14 when Miriam and the women lead the congregation in praise of God for the... Um, for the deliverance from Egypt, and they dance, and they use tambourines and such. Even military victories, this sounds like. But why the mention of all these things? To emphasize that you need to praise God with everything you have. Just grab it all. Praise God with everything you have. Okay, if 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 his worthiness of being praised for his greatness is beyond your capacity to express as you praise him for greatness, then the very least you can do is worship him with everything that you have. As the football coaches say, leave it all out there on the field. By the way, that's part of the logic of singing. And I, here, here is just one word from an old guy. I'm an old guy now. I'm 58 years old. An old guy to young folks, which has zero to do with the style of music that your church uses. Don't be passive in singing to God. The whole point of singing to God is not to be passive. Okay, that's the whole, the whole point of singing is to join what you believe about God, the truth of God revealed in your word that you believe with all your heart, with your desires, so that you express from the depth of your being and you even connect with that emotional part of who you are, so that all of you, the mind, the will, and the affections, 
your thinking, your believing, and your feeling are all joined together and given back to God. And you don't want to do that passively. <laughs> I, I see people in churches all the time, their hands are in the pocket, and they're kind of sitting there looking around during the singing. Folks up front are singing. Folks in the back are not. Don't do that. Don't be passive. The whole point of singing is to give all of yourself to God in praise. But that singing in and of itself is just a picture of how we're to give all ourselves to God in praise. You remember what Paul says at the end of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans? So he goes 1 to 11, and he gives you glorious doctrine. Then starting in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he moves into Christian living, ethics, applied theology. And he starts off, and here's his first word. Give yourselves as living sacrifices. You know, God has saved you by his grace. So here's what I want you to do in response to that. Give yourselves, give your, not, 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 just your, not just your heart, but your whole bodies to God as living sacrifices. You know, if you want to be provocative, you could say, Jesus wants more than your heart. He wants all of you. He, he wants your whole self. Not just your heart, all of you. And so Paul says, give yourselves as living sacrifices. And it, that's a call to worship God in all of life, isn't it? He'll say it later in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But that goes right back to Ephesians 1 where he says that the reason we were created and the reason that we were redeemed was to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. He says it three times in Ephesians 1. Now what's he saying? He's saying you were made for his praise. You were made for his glory. So give the whole of yourselves to him in praise. This is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism means when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were made to glorify God. That's what we were made. We were made for praise. So the psalmist says, how do you do that? You do it with everything you have. You praise him with all that you are. By the way, that's one reason why you can't really praise God and not love your neighbor. Because if God cares for everybody, including your neighbor, including the neighbor that you don't like, you can't praise God and glorify him and not care about that neighbor. So our love for God and our love for the neighbor are actually tied together in our worship of God. So how do you praise him? With everything you have. In other words, the psalmist wants our praise of God to be integrated. He wants our inside and our outside to go together. He doesn't want us to talk pious talk about worshiping God and not really love him from our hearts. He doesn't want us to claim to love him from our hearts without living lives that glorify him. He wants us to be totally integrated. 
So our, our walk and our talk go together. Our profession and the reality of our desires go together. It all goes together. Sin disintegrates us. Grace reintegrates us so that the inside and outside, the profession and the life, the doctrine and the practice, it all goes together. And so how do you praise God? With everything you have. It's, even, the, even the exhortation is reintegrating with everything you have. Fourth and finally, who is it that is to praise God? Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Who is it that is to praise God? Everyone and everything. All creatures of our God and King, the hymn goes. Everyone and everything is to praise the Lord. Everything was created for the praise of his glory. The psalmist longs for everything that has life and breath to praise the Lord. And that, of course, means if that is true amongst humanity, it will require missions. Right? If everyone is going to praise the Lord, somebody is going to have to go out there and tell them about him. Because everyone is not praising the Lord. There are seven plus billion people on this planet. And there are precious few believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if they are going to come to praise the Lord willingly, I mean, we all do know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we want them to want to. And the only way that will happen is missions. So notice the connection. The psalmist wants everyone to worship God. That requires missions. And that, of course, is why John Piper says what he says in Let the Nations Be Glad. Listen to it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Now, does that mean that missions are not important? No, here's the next phrase. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. Worship fuels your missionary effort, and it is the goal of your missionary effort. It is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. What do you want to do by virtue of your endeavor in missions? Bring people into living for the praise of God so that they might glorify and enjoy Him forever. Missions serves the end of worship. And it is the fuel for your missionary endeavor. Once you come to believe that God is better than anything and everything that this world has to offer, and that you can only be spared from your sins by his grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and you want the nations to join in with that same praise for him, for who he is and what he has done, it requires missions, right? That empowers 
the missionary endeavor and effort. So here we see how praise and missions go together. In missions, we want to bring people into this praise of God because why? We want everything that has life and breath to praise the Lord. And it fuels us to go tell the nations because we have a story to tell the nations because of what God has done for us. We, we want what he has in his mercy given to us for them. What better way can you love your neighbor, by the way? God's, God's grace is too good to keep to yourself. Like the, the beggars of old, we need to go back to the city and tell them there's food. And so God's praiseworthiness and his grace fuel our missionary endeavor. That's how the Psalms end. They tell us where to praise God, why to praise God, how to praise God, and then they invite us with them to want everyone with life and breath to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Bless it to our hearts, we pray. And I grant, I pray, Lord, that you would grant in your mercy to call missionaries from this place, from this room, who will serve you faithfully with their whole lives and whole selves to the praise of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.